I think it was the theologians who first started the idea, later the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. This is Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Volk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. 100%. All right, we're rolling. Cheers, sir. How are you doing, Jake? So good. So what are we drinking? Because you, uh, I came with whiskey, you came with better whiskey. So. <laughs> well, I mean, everyone has their own preference, so I don't want to trump your whiskey. Um, so this is a... Please trump my whiskey. It's like, <laughs> I was looking, I'm like, all right, what doesn't look crap, but is like $15. <laughs> no, let's go with that stuff. Um, I don't I don't know the cost of this whiskey, but it's a, uh, it's a Glen Levet, uh, 12-year-old single malt. Um, I really enjoyed it. I find it to be a, a really smooth whiskey. Um, it was a gift from my wife's dad. So I, uh, I didn't think I'd work through the bottle, but here we are here a year we are. later and the bottle's almost gone. So nice. <laughs> this is good stuff. This is definitely kicks harder than uh, the stuff I have. Okay. But I, yeah, I get a kick out of it. Good thing our, uh, our glasses are small. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> we might jump up for some water or I will midway through yeah, this. Yeah, no worries. Um, so this is fun because I don't know you that well. We met at your place. Yep. Probably what, when did I show up? Like probably what, a couple months ago, something yeah, like that. Something like that. Yep. And so Eric Haida, shout out, he, um, he's been coming, he'd been coming a lot longer to your place. Yep. And you have a, why don't you describe it? The Monday, Monday night thing that we do. Sure. So it started kind of a couple months ago, three months ago. Let me think. What are we? We're May now. So probably three or four months ago. Um, there was myself and another couple guys, both actually there, they work in Nigeria, um, Josh Emanuel and Dan Sigma. Um, they were very interested in kind of helping the local Christian churches to, to understand their heritage around political action, particularly with everything that's going on, uh, with COVID-19 and, and, um, the government interventions for COVID-19. Mm. So they wanted to help Christians understand their heritage with regards to political action, kind of dig into uh, the intellectual side of worldview. Uh, so we together we decided to put a bit of a group together, uh, invite people out to um, to discuss these issues, uh, and it was it was basically open to any Christian. Um, we decided to do Monday nights, meet weekly. Over the past three months, I'd say we've discussed a lot of pretty oh, yeah. heavy topics. Mm-hmm. Um, things talking about uh, biblical uh, ideals of freedom, um, uh, the government, uh, sort of, sort of the the realm of um, the government's authority according to the Bible. Um, we've talked about personal responsibility. We've talked about all sorts of pretty, pretty heavy topics, pretty dense topics. Yeah. Um, I know I've enjoyed it. Uh, both Josh and Dan are back in Nigeria now, but uh, I mean, we're we're hoping to keep it going for as long as possible, as long as people want to discuss these things. Yeah. So, it was really fun uh, coming the first time because you never really know what to expect, and especially when people say like, oh, we're going to discuss ideas, and you're like, this is the potential to be awesome, and the potential to be a lot of complaining. Very <laughs> mediocre. Yeah. And so, and then very quickly, I was like, oh man, these people think, and they think <laughs> properly, this is wonderful. And like, 
you guys put forward like very quickly like okay we are here to discuss things from first principles yeah and it's like hey you know what first principles means yeah yeah great yeah and we followed through with that like you guys maintain a really thoughtful atmosphere with the discussions and really encouraging people to challenge things and then taking challenges seriously when there's opposition and it's really cool the fact that we we actively hold disagreements on a yep. couple of relation COVID things. Yep. And it's awesome. Like, yep. good discussions. Yeah. It's interesting because I don't know, I don't exactly know why it is. I haven't really been able to put my thumb on it. Um, but people are so afraid to disagree with each other. Mm. Um, even, even within sort of the, like we're in the Niagara region, um, within the Reformed churches in the Niagara region, people are so afraid to disagree with each other. And I'm not 100% sure why that is. Mm. Um, because like, I love disagreements, disagreements, like disagreements, foster discussion, and it, it allows you to get one step closer to the truth. That's my mentality. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I'll put forward two thoughts you can, you can choose. Here's, here's what I, cause I've thought about this a lot, right? I think one of the big ones is if you disagree with me, I usually can figure out pretty fast that it means that I don't have enough information or you don't have enough information or both. Okay. Because I think both of, when I'm with someone who's a reader or someone who, who enjoys consuming information, it's usually pretty quick for us to go, oh, there's just more on the table here and it's not personal, right? Yeah. Like, like you, be, you come back and go like, hey man, look, there's these couple books I've read, really framed my perspective on the topic. That's where we're rubbing. You don't quite have the tool set right now to figure this out. But that's cool. It just means you haven't read the same books, right? Yeah. So there's, I think there's almost a level of when you start to dive into the world of learning things, you, you start getting a little bit of humility, maybe. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Sure. And I think for some people, if they're not, if that's not a regular practice in their life of, of taking in a good amount of wide, a good amount of, of diverse sets of information, yep. it gets really scary when they yep. come to areas where they don't, where people disagree yep. because it's like, why they might not know why like yeah is it is and and i don't know if that makes sense no it's not when you learn more information it's not necessarily that you know why someone disagrees but you kind of have a good idea of where they could be coming from conceptually even if you don't really know the specifics yeah yeah um and the other i think that's the one area that i found the other one at least in christian circles is when you meet someone who really loves jesus and you can tell and you don't doubt that you have a really good foundation for disagreeing yeah because it's like you have your takes take on covid masks i have my take whatever that sure. might be yeah i don't for a second doubt that you like love jesus yep. and and that's a core of who you are so i don't have to like freak out or try and convince you one way or the other of that fact yeah, you yeah, know yeah. what i mean i, I don't know what is, um, how does that hit you I, yeah like Maybe, maybe part of it is, is okay, so um, I love Jesus. This person I'm disagreeing with loves Jesus. Maybe am I loving Jesus wrong? I don't mm. know. Is that? Yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? Oh, 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 that's interesting. So, and this, I think, was, this was a part of our discussions for a while. Yeah. Um, if you, this is a spectrum, right? In the Christian walk, there are, this is a Christian liberty thing, right? Yeah. In the Christian walk, there are things that are like, no, uh, I think this is wrong. God thinks this is, God thinks this is wrong. 
you're wrong. Yeah. Like flat out, we're good. All the way to areas where it's like Christian liberty all, all the way, no worries, right? Yeah. And if you're, I think, maybe inclined to view more subjects as black or right, right or wrong, like there is a correct way to do it and anything that isn't the correct way is sin, then you might have a lot more difficult conversations because they are framed in a way of, if you disagree with me, you are sinning. Right. Whereas increasingly, the older I get, the older I get, geez, <laughs> um, dare I say, I, I'm finding less that falls into that category. Um, maybe that's right. a different, maybe you have a different experience than me. I'm just finding like things like, you know, I, a lot long ago, issues of the Sabbath or Sunday and those two, how they fit used to be more of a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm really not interested in proclaiming sin on really any side sure. of that discussion. Sure. Even though I'm happy to have a five hour conversation on what that looks like. Yeah. It, nowhere really in there does it get like, oh no, you're sinning if you disagree with me. Right. Pretty much nowhere. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. I've thought a lot about this too, because um, particularly with COVID-19 and everything around it, we've seen kind of, maybe it's an underlying division in the church, but mm. a lot of churches that, that appeared to be united um, divided over a lot of issues, right? Mm. Um, so <clears throat> I've thought a lot about this as well. And, and really the things that we must disagree on, the list of things that we must disagree on to maintain our Christian faith, it's a short list. Yeah. It's really a short list. And I like a potential summary of that would be perhaps the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. Right? And that's like, <clears throat> that's not a lot of stuff in there. Can we fire at a really niche topic? Go for Let's it. Let's go. Okay. So <laughs> I've thought about that. I, I, because the Apostles' Creed is pretty much held up as the, as that, that's the document, right? Yeah. You, you sign on to that one. We're, yep. we're good to put yep. it really broadly. First of all, it's interesting that the Catholics do. Yeah. That's interesting to, to ponder for a week or two. He descended into hell. <laughs> so I've. I knew this was coming up. <laughs> right? Well, it's interesting to me because I, I've heard so many explanations. I've gone on both sides. Like yep. my initial, my initial thought when I came to that was, nope, big old cup of nope. Sure didn't. That's bad. That's phrased wrong. No way. And then I read some stuff from Peter and Jude and I'm like, the, you know, of, of Christ descending, uh, ministering to the spirits in the underworld. And I'm like, hmm. hold on. Um, maybe they knew exactly what they were writing. Uh, okay. Was not expecting that. Yeah. And then I've sort of pulled back to, I'm not really sure yep. the specifics, yep. but it's so interesting to me that like, I, you'd hope it was so unified, but maybe there's never going to be a document that exactly encapsulates it without right. some level of quandary i don't know what you think about that but. yeah so usually i say it's the the apostles creed minus one clause <laughs> uh, giving room for disagreement on that one specific clause um but i mean we could simplify it even further to simply like just belief in christ for your salvation mm -hmm. and and that's the only place right. that you receive your salvation right and that's the, that's sort of the essence of the christian faith yeah and then beyond that we we perhaps actually have the freedom to disagree on a whole lot of yeah, stuff. Totally. Right? I um and, and the interesting thing is certain areas of disagreement are really are much more potent for different people. Yeah. Like so for me <laughs> this might sound weird, but if someone really disagrees with me on covenant theology, 
that's kind of a huge sticker for me. Actually, okay. I have a hard time sometimes because for, only just for me, it seems so cataclysmic between their understanding of how they piece together the, like the Bible and how I do. Yeah. Um, but like Calvinism versus Arminianism, I'm like, whatever. Doesn't right. bother, doesn't bother me in the slightest. Yeah, yeah. But other people, it's, it's totally different, right? Yeah. I have friends who, the way they've hashed through Calvinism, um, it's not Fred for anyone listening. Um, <laughs> the way they've hashed through Calvinism is it just makes it so difficult for them for a couple tenets of that for them to reconcile like a loving God, double predestination, right. whatever. However, they've figured that out. So for them, how they've sorted through that issue is so important to them. And yeah. I've I've never been lit up by that particular discussion. Sure. Sure. It's just weird that different things for different people. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because um, the Calvinism versus Arminianism um, discussion uh, at one point, I think it was Canons of Dort, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so at one point, that was like, that was a huge issue in the church. Mm-hmm. But then reading through uh, sort of reformed thought coming after that, I'm particularly referring to uh, Groen van Prinster, uh, a Dutch politician, statesman. Um, he actually said, you know what, it was a huge issue at, at that time when it was written. Um, but for us now, yes, we still agree with the canons of Dort, but he didn't necessarily think that it should be a point of division. Um, hmm. it, it shouldn't be, we shouldn't adhere to it dogmatically if it means that we're dividing from other Christians, dividing ourselves from other Christians. So it's really interesting. He would say the same thing on right. on Calvinism versus Arminianism. Interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Because yeah. that's that's not something that you hear in the Reformed Church very often, mm. right? Uh, here's another interesting thing about you, um, for sure, is you know your church history, guys, like way better than I do. <laughs> like it's not even comparable because you can actually quote the names and, and give the thoughts of where people are at. And, so um, realistically, that's just, that's something that I've really dug into a lot in the past, probably six months. Okay. Um, I've really, really got interested, particularly in the um, sort of reformed thought of politics um, and how that progressed um, from guys like uh, Calvin all the way up to, um, sort of our, our more modern guys, including uh, Grun and Kuiper and stuff like that. So I've really dug into that in the past few months. Um, beyond that, I, I'm certainly not an expert in church history. I really enjoy it. There's a lot we can learn from it. Yeah, but I'm, I'm definitely not an expert. Gotcha. Yeah, I um, I want to learn more about the Reformation. I want to yep. read a few good um, biographies. Yeah. Just just to understand my heritage more, because I yep. think that would be really really helpful. Other than that, I'm. I'm washy wishy-washy just yeah, don't yeah. i don't know much i did a church history like a broad church history from yeah. like from jesus till the reformation uh for a class this year and i just got so dry it was yeah. like this person conquered this person and instituted catholicism right. and you're like yeah 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 oh, man. yeah and the, you know the, the franks were in this area and you're just i i personally just lost it i could yeah. didn't yeah. handle it very well um, I don't. I don't necessarily want to give my podcast a shout out. I'll give a book dude, a shout dude, go, out. Go, go for it. No, no, no. <laughs> um, so on my podcast, I, I read through the story of liberty, and the one reason why I really, really enjoy the story of liberty and why I decided to read through it was, for me, I'm I'm similar to you. I didn't really know a lot about uh, church history. I didn't know a lot about the reformers, but the story of liberty really brought all those stories alive. Okay. Um, it's it's written in like. It's historical fact, but then it's also dramatized. 
Um, so not not every detail is accurate. So if it yeah. says the the wind was blowing through the trees, leaves were rustling, stuff like that. Yes, we don't know if that's historically accurate. But Although fair guess, probably was probably wind. <laughs> yeah. God's a god of uniformity. We'll, we'll yeah, that's right. That um, but yeah, this story goes through um, goes through the the Reformation from the 1300s all the way up to um, 1600s type of stuff, and it, it incorporates a lot of the reformers it incorporates guys like christopher columbus and the explorers mm-hmm. and it shows how um christianity really spread through these men and and kind of what they thought and and the the political response to their thoughts really really interesting book and it it's it's simple enough that it's it's relatively easy to grasp and it's a, it's it's a story so um it's interesting at the same time it's not dry Cool. And you, so this book is called? This book is called The Story of Liberty. Okay. It's written by uh, Charlton, no, Charles Carlton Coffin back okay. in the 1800s. Yep. And I, I read the book and recorded it and it's on my podcast now. Which is called? Which is called One Christian Thinks. Rad. So <laughs> we'll, people hopefully can check that out and, and get a kick out of that. Yeah, yeah. Fun. That's cool. Um, is that... I don't know why I'm thinking about this. What's the book that we're studying? The book the... that that we uh, we're going to be going through is called uh, "Live Not by Lies." Yeah, by Rod Dreher. Um, it's a book that uh, the first time it was recommended to me, I was like, uh, "That's probably too radical." Yeah. I'm, I'm probably not going to read that. And then it was recommended to me another time, and I was like, uh, "Maybe." And then it was recommended to me a third time by someone else. And I was like, all right, I got to read it now. Sure. So um, I figured in our, in our Monday night meetings, um, to give our meetings a little bit of structure, um, we'd go through this book and, and kind of see. We can, I, I don't know if I agree with the book 100%. We can certainly critically evaluate it, uh, but it should be an interesting read anyways. Totally. And that came off of uh, Russians. Solzhenitsyn's paper, right? Solzhenitsyn's, that's right. Solzhenitsyn. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, it came off of his paper that was that was titled "Live Not by Lies." It's a yeah. great read. Yeah, his story is absolutely bonkers. Right? Yeah, he wrote the uh, Gulag Archipelago. It's a three-volume series, and it's been called by I forget who, but one of the greatest weaponized pieces of literature ever created in yeah. a sense, because he pretty much with that volume brought down the soviet union that's right yeah because and he had to he had to work on it in like multiple drafts in different cities because he was being hunted by the kgb for for as soon as he got out of the gulags yeah and yeah when he published it i mean obviously didn't do well in russia because russia was under soviet control at the time but it took the west by storm and that's kind of what turned a ton of eyes on russia being like what are you people doing there and it was just it's one of the most damning pieces of literature yeah because he just so meticulously recounted what was happening um, in Russia at the time with the gulags and, and the right. concentration camps, and really cool. Like, and also how like how communism necessarily leads to the gulags. Mm. Um, it's not just um, that Russia did communism wrong. No, Russia did communism right. Yeah, and and they led to the gulags, and and that is a basically it's it shows just a, on, in a very practical way why communism is so terrible yeah and he because uh Solzhenitsyn rooted the problem at lenin not stalin right that's a lot of that's commonly what people say is you know stalin went crazy lenin had some of the rights idea but he went all the way back to i think it's the bolshevik revolution yeah um and the decolon- decolonization of the kulaks where they took 
you right. know all these farmers and productive farmers and basically treated them as the like the privileged class right. and just annihilated them and causing a huge famine right reading that book was terrifying because of the amount of stuff that actually echoed today yeah you know what i mean like i you hear that with um like you read orwell stuff and it's like this is scary the echoes orwellian and it's true you read Solzhenitsyn, it's like you could literally cut and paste this article into a into the Guardian, right? And it would be this is this is exactly what we're saying, right? Right. Now. It was it's terrifying. Well, well, things like things like cancel culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you say the wrong thing, and and your whole life is destroyed by by the mob, right? How is that different than what happened in Soviet Russia? Yeah. Um, perhaps the only difference is is at this point your life isn't entirely threatened. It's not threatened with violence. Well, mm. then again, it often is. Yeah, if you're if you're um, a target of the cancel culture mob. Yeah, yeah. There's there's one point in the Soviet regime where people would clap for for Stalin for ten minutes because right, no yeah. one wanted to be the first person to stop yep. clapping. Yeah, sometimes the first person who did stop clapping uh, wouldn't be around too much longer. That's right. Yeah, so, I I don't know where I heard it. It might have been, I don't know. I know Peterson is a big mm. fan of Solzhenitsyn. And it could be that he uh, he told that story in one of his lectures or something yep. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Listen to a good many of that guy's lectures. Yeah. yeah. As have I. Yeah. Have you listened to his uh, his uh, UFT lecture series, Personality and its Transformations? No. This is how you test a true Peterson fan. <laughs> Where you, whether you go back to his psychology lectures or not. So I'm working through... Right now, I am working through a set of his personality lectures. Okay. Um, I'm not sure which ones. But uh, would it be tw- 2017 Personality and Its Transformations? That's the last series he did as a professor at U of T. I don't think so. Okay. I don't. That doesn't ring a bell. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd have to look it up on my... Yeah. I'm sure he's got multiple versions of his, yeah. his material all over the place. It is a fairly recent lecture series for okay. sure. And it, is, is, it is a lecture series. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like... Peterson's amazing to me for so many reasons, um, but he shines the most when he's in his element, which is just personality psychology. Yeah, and like like just cracking open Jung and Freud and Adler yeah. and and the psychoanalysts and and just laying out what it means to be a human from a psychoanalytical point of yeah. view. It's so fascinating to me. Yeah, it. he's he's absolutely brilliant. He really is, um, and it. I find what's happening most recently with him to be the most interesting. Yeah. Um, I fully believe that you can't reason your way to the gospel, but he's a half a step away. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really interesting when you, when you look at his, particularly his recent history and how, how troubled he's been. Um, and I think a lot, uh, a big part of it is simply that he does not have an explanation for the biblical story of the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. He can't explain it. He, he explains, I would say, the rest of the Bible very well. Yeah. It's remarkable, actually, but he doesn't know what to make of the resurrection of, the, of Christ, which is what Christianity hinges yeah. on, right? Yeah, and the resurrection is a really interesting event because you could say, like a healing. You could... Myth, myth. What's the, What's an active verb of to make a myth? Myth, mythalize, mythologize, <laughs> mythologize, Mytholo- mythologize. I think it's actually mythologize. Um, you if can it, mythologize. Not it is now. <laughs> yeah. You can mythologize a healing to be like wow. The details might not be he actually got him sight, but maybe he was so impacted by Jesus, it's as if he could see. Right. Whatever. 
you're either dead or you're not. Yeah. Like, there's not really any middle ground. Christ is either rotting in a tomb or raised the way he said he was. Yeah. There's, there's not much middle ground. And if all reliable sources and many scholarly works to, to, to flush that out say that he rose from the dead, um, reliable sources being the Gospels um, and the Epistles, then you got to reckon with that. Yeah. That's, that's just it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, very, very interesting stuff. Mm. It, it, I'm sort of following his story fairly closely just to see where it goes. Yeah. Um, he's still putting out some really good interviews. Yep. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see. And I, of course, of course, God is working through him without a doubt because he's brought a lot of uh, interest into the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's going to be, yeah, I just, I'm very interested to see where it goes. Yeah. I mean, he made people respect the Bible, yeah. if nothing else, right? Yeah. yeah. Which is a good, at least a good place to be from it's a bunch of fairy tales and nonsense to at least respect this, right? Yeah. And yeah. Do you, do you uh, sort of follow the, what, what's termed the intellectual dark web at all? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm deep. So, like, there's a, there's a phrase that says you start with Peterson, you go to John and Paggio, and then you end up at Paul Vanderclay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like, it's funny because to a certain extent, it's true. Peterson turns a lot of people onto the Bible, gets them interested, gets them interested in church again. And, and then all of a sudden you're, you start to listen to Jonathan Paggio, who, who frequently talks with Peterson. Mm-hmm. They talk about the same thing. Paggio is Eastern Orthodox. Very, very interesting guy to listen to. And then kind of the, the, the completely Christian side of that is Paul Vanderclay. Okay. And, and if you end up there, then I mean... Is, is he part of the IDW? IDW? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's most people lump him in that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And then if you if you get to Paggio and then you take a detour, you end up at uh, Ben Shapiro and you get <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a Jew. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I um. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Peterson. There's three people, um, public figures that I've found who have hit me as thinking entirely different, like genuinely original thinkers yep. which i think are really rare like i'm not an original thinker yep. at all i mean if you read the, if you read the same thing i read you will know exactly why i talk and you can yep. literally predict what i say yeah um peterson when i first encountered him i was like here's a 100 percent original thinker and then it, peterson too if you start reading jung yeah, and freud right. and you read social and you start piecing together why he thinks but yeah i thought i genuinely have never encountered someone like him eric weinstein okay I don't know if you follow much. I have not heard, like I've heard about him, but I have not um, kind of listened to him or or looked at what he says. Yeah. He's an interesting, he's a, he's a theoretical physicist or he plays in that realm and he's a mathematician. Yeah. And again, his perspective on the world and his value systems are so strange, but make a lot of sense. Yeah. And they're just, it's really interesting for him to piece. It's cool when you hear someone say something and you've like, why would you ever think that's valuable? And then in five minutes, they're like, have you being like, oh, wow, that's super valuable. Yeah, right. It's cool. Yeah. Um, those two guys. And the other one is Gary Vanderschuk or Vaderschuk. Okay. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. No. He's, uh, this is more if you're, if you're an entrepreneurial type person. Okay. He's a really, really fired up entrepreneurial guy. Um, this is not an endorsement of him because he's, uh, he's not the cleanest <laughs> fellow in the world but he gets my like entrepreneurial spirits fired mm-hmm. up like no one else and he he just understands people 
in consumer behavior and marketing sure like no one i've ever encountered yeah just like a really fascinating guy and he's like kind of has this terrifying track record of calling all of these companies like he was an early investor in youtube in uber okay in paypal or not yep. paypal uh in square in all these different companies like he called them way before everyone else did yeah which is kind of fun yeah I, I follow some of his things whenever i want to pretend to start another company or something <laughs> but yeah there's my not plug not endorsement but i people could do worse than checking out those three people and sure yeah, just yeah, consuming yeah. A, a different perspective on life yeah so interestingly i i paul vanderclay um, he's a CRC pastor down in, I want to say California. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but, okay. um, and he's got a good Dutch name. So yeah. <laughs> gotta be holy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but very interesting. So I listened to a lot of what he, I listened to a lot of his stuff and he's doing some really, really cool work down there. Um, actually kind of similar to what you do on Thursday nights. So, um, We'll get to that in a second. I'll let you jump into that. But he's doing, uh, he's working with a lot of um, kind of homeless people and and people who just, who really, really struggle and mm. who really have questions. And he's got, he's got a men's group and um, basically they're allowed to discuss anything. He, yeah. he lets them bring in any topic and he's willing to discuss it with them. And he always lays out kind of the, um, the biblical argument, the biblical solution, but he doesn't kick them out for for trying something else right huge so he's doing a lot a lot of good stuff down there and going back to what we were discussing earlier about sort of the essentials of the gospel and being free to um think differently on different topics he was talking about women in office at one point and and he clearly supported it and i was like okay this guy who's clearly doing gospel work um, supports women in office. That's something that I don't agree with, mm. right? And, and I, I could go straight to the Bible and say why or why not. Um, so I was like, is even that something that we actually have freedom to disagree on? Mm. And that's just something that we're discussing now, tying back to something we discussed earlier. And it's something that I've had to wrestle with over the past kind of just couple months. Yeah, um, just thinking what, about like that. the topic, women in office, yeah. in particular. Yeah, yeah, and and just so. Most of the time, I've always seen that as so cut and dry. Like, right. um, what I see as as absolute biblical truth is it's so clear to me. But then, Vander Clay is doing great work down in California, um, and he's seeing a lot of fruit from it. Mm. And, but but he supports women in office. Like, how how can that be? Yeah. Uh, does he know the gospel? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so that's something that's challenged me for sure. Right. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I probably have a pretty clean split on all the uh, Christian leaders who I respect on the issue. Okay. A bunch okay. A bunch of them. Um, I mean, I'd be very annoyed with someone who's like an advocate, like, women in office, the best thing ever, everybody should be doing it. That would just, that'd be boring. But um, a most, not, not most, about half of the people I really respect would, would be comfortable with that. Okay. And then uh, the other half would probably really not be, like yeah. really classic reformed dudes like yep. piper and, yep. and stuff like that so sure. yeah that's one of the issues too where i'm like all right i'm gonna put that on a shelf and, and <laughs> eventually get around to reading a bunch of books on it before i open my mouth too widely right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but no it's a uh, yeah it's interesting i uh sort of relate to this i ran a bible study at brock 
Okay. Um, it was called What's Up With The Bible. And people would drop in and ask all their questions about the Bible. Yeah. Really cool. I chatted with Muslims. I chatted with atheists, Hindus, all kinds of different people. Yeah. Yeah. And then near the end, it kind of tapered off. But there's this one girl uh, from Africa who came all the time. And she would just... It was so cool because she was a new Christian and she would come and pepper me with all the right questions. Yeah. Like, like just come up and, Jacob, I, I don't understand. How do we know the Bible's true? Yeah. Like, how can we be sure? And I'd be like, thank you. I've got some <laughs> answers for that. Let me recommend some books. So it was just really good. Or, or, or like the classic ones, like if, if God is so good, why does he allow evil in the world? Yeah. Like yeah. all the really great questions you want to get. Yeah. But some of the questions she would ask were just mind-bogglingly interesting that I would or or so unique maybe to our culture and our time that I'm not sure what to make of it exactly yet yeah so one of the questions she asked was so she cut to the cut to the chase and she's like um bible seems to say that a husband and wife like a women are supposed to submit to their husbands what does that even mean yeah follow-up question what does that mean for non-binary couples hmm so I'm like, um, all right. So I laid it out. Like, here's, you know, here's, first of all, let's outline all the ways that it doesn't mean what you might think when you mean yeah. women are supposed to submit. Like, let's get that on off the table. Yeah. So once you get a healthy view of that, then you maybe, I talked a bit about like what it means for like a marriage to image Christ in the church. Like that's essential. That's so important. Um, and then walked it back to Genesis, like all, all the good places. And then, um, and then I kind of said like, I think God created man and woman, male and female. Um, there can be complexities in that, but it still stands that that's how God made us. Yeah. And I don't believe it's a healthy way to think of people in other categories. I just don't, if there's weird extremities, we can address those on a case by case basis, if you will. But on the whole, male and female is how God made us. She didn't have a problem with marriage. Okay. She At the end, she was like, yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, wives submitting to husbands, like husbands ahead of the wife, like that makes sense to me. But of course, they're non-binary people. Hmm. So I was left like, you bought the one that I thought would be the tough yeah, sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, but you're just not going to budge on them. Of course, there's not people who identify as non-binary. So she was sort of left with the question of what do two non-binary people, if they're married, do? Yeah. Who, who's the husband? Who's the wife? I wonder... But it's just strange to me because I would have never predicted that as a question. Because she was seemed to be fine with the, with the other half because I was pretty biblical. So Yeah. I wonder if she got stuck on that because... Um, sort of to affirm the LGBTQ mm-hmm. uh, agenda is is seen as caring, and, yeah. and Christians must be caring. So she she like she felt it impossible to reconcile that. Yeah, perhaps I don't yeah. know. I mean that uh, like, and I, I empathize with that. Yeah. Right. If there was, you know, I I'm fairly confident that you know most of what our churches would affirm about about. Um, LGBT lifestyle and all that stuff like that's sinful that's not right but if there's one area where I wish Jesus had just not been so clear or the Bible had not been so clear I, it seems it seems to my mind logical that it would just be like nah love who you want to sure I'm perfectly comfortable me being wrong like I, how I feel <laughs> about this is not going to dictate what's true yeah but that's probably the one area where I wish that wasn't the case you know what I mean but mm-hmm. every age will have its area where yeah, for sure. Where it's just not comfortable. And there's plenty of other areas where I'm just like, I'm perfectly comfortable following what Jesus says, even if it's countercultural. It's yeah. just easy. Yeah. This is one of the areas where it's less so. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like that's, it, it is the culture we live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the culture we live in, it seems to be 
more and more opposed to Christianity. Um, maybe Christians just have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's for sure. Yeah. But again, I said this in another podcast too. I wish, I really wish I'd lived for two thousand or 200 years because I, I, I think it's hard for Christians right now in some instances, but then other instances I'm like, is it really like, maybe we're in like one of the easier times. Yeah. Maybe if we could really look from a like 20,000 foot view, we'd be like, Oh, actually it's great right now. Yeah. It's been a lot worse in a lot of other areas. Right. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Well, we'll have to see. I, I mean, I've heard similar. It's like, um, kind of the past, I don't know, let's say, let's say a hundred years, just for argument's sake, the past hundred years in, in Western culture has been relatively Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course it is a very imperfect Christian society. Um, but that, that was the anomaly in history. Yeah. Right. Um, it's, it's far more normal if you look at the past 2000 years for Christians to be in, in one sense or another persecuted. Right. Right. So, so perhaps we're right now in the West, we're seeing a trend towards that back to kind of normal. Mm-hmm. What was historically normal. Mm. Yeah. I just read a really good book. Um, the, I think it was, oh, this, I just pulled this up on my phone. I should drop this in here just because it's funny. <laughs> um, I was being, spending some time reading uh, the, just reading, doing some research on the three forms of unity. Okay. And uh, this is a little, uh, quote from Wikipedia, which is the author of all true sources, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> the Belgic Confession became the basis of the counter to the Arminian controversy that arose in the following century, and Arminius opposed the notion that it accused against his theology. Furthermore, contrary to popular thought and allegations to the contrary, Arminius maintained his affirmation of the Belgic Confession until his death in October 1609, which is very okay. fascinating to me. So it's like, take this, you Arminian scum, reads it. No, this is good. I'm fine. I'm going to be good with this. Uh, I'm, I'm, okay. It was written against like Arminian yeah, theology. I'm interested to know their source for that. Fair and, enough. And Fair a little enough. bit more of uh, that story because that's yeah. very interesting. Like I, I, That would be so disheartening to write a treatise against someone's theology for them to read it and be like, I affirm this. Yeah, I, I, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who knows? Uh, a book I read, uh, Letters to Copernicum, I think. The Lost Letters of Pergamum. That's it. Mm. The other city. Um, by Bruce Longnecker. Really interesting. It's uh, it's fictional. And it recounts Luke, uh, the physician, writing to a like uh, Pergamum nobleman. Um, and just their letter exchange back and forth. Yep. And a like, fictional letter exchange. Sure. And it's really interesting because it really situates you in the first century context. Okay. So it's really interesting because this nobleman who's like all about Rome, like all about Rome, all about the gods, firmly convinced that if you do well in life, it's because the gods blessed you. If you're a peasant and you're poor and you're dying of polio, it's because of God, gods hate you, of course. Yep. Um, and it's really interesting, like the questions he has about the gospel and the things he struggles with as he's slowly converting to, to Christ. Yeah that are so framed by his context. Like the author does a really good job of getting you in his mindset yeah. and realizing like half of your concerns with the gospel are, were never the concerns of the original audience. Right. They yeah. were so like the thing, like, you know, honor, shame society. Like it's sure. a really cool book to kind of get you into that mindset. So you can start understanding a little bit better what things were being addressed back then. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause it's so strange that, you know, 
for us, if Joe, whatever, um, has a bunch of homeless people over for supper, like you can be a really horrible person and generally you're like, okay, nice guy. Joe's a solid dude, whatever, right? Very few people sneer at that. Mm -hmm. In Roman culture, it was like, what? Really? You actually associated with those people? Like you had them over to your house? Yeah. Like that was just on that that wasn't even unheard of. That was like grounds for the person who did that to be like, okay, avoid him. He's yeah. like shameful. He's like nope. Right? Yeah. Was, you didn't and the fact that Christian society were gathering together and even like subverting the normal expectations where sometimes the nobleman would serve the poor people. Yeah. Like they would completely subvert their traditional rules. That's mind bending on a level that we just don't get. Not even right. we can't even get close to understanding right. what that's like. Right. And the book did a pretty good job of kind of getting me in that headspace. Imagine, imagine being that counterculture. Yeah. Right. Very much so. And, and what's interesting about that is that um, they were countercultural in a very in a very caring way, in a very loving way. Yeah. Um, sometimes I feel like as Christians we. We're countercultural in the way that we now I know this isn't true about every Christian and about every church, but it seems like we're countercultural because we are we kind of proclaim hell and damnation on the mm-hmm. people who who go against what the church says. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um and and yeah, it's just I guess our, our approach to culture has to be very, very um carefully managed. Um, mm. we've, we've got to be very careful with that. Yeah. I think a lot of, I don't know if this is quite, tell me if this fits into kind of where you're going. I think how Christians largely managed um, homosexuality, the topic in, in the past centuries was a little bit like that. Yeah. It was sort of, and you could argue it was a, like the straw that broke the camel's back because the family had been on a decline as a valued institution for so long yeah. that this was sort of the first area where Christians could grab a hold of and say, like, no, like, yeah. nah. And, but I think often the way it was, it was treated was that hell damnation way, and it just wasn't done in a loving way. Right. And then I think in the last probably decade, at least from some of the books that I've read from the last decade, yeah. it, Christians on the whole, on the public level, have done a much better job of yeah. being like, no, 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 we love you. Yeah. We disagree with your lifestyle. Here's how we tease that out in a meaningful way. Yeah. And and doing like people like um, Rosaria Butterfield, yeah. um, her, right. some of her, her books, her thoughts, uh, Caleb Colton back. Um, there's a few others. Yeah. So, and I feel like you're right. Christians need to thoughtfully mediate their, their, a public face with culture in a way yeah. that's meaningful. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then of course that plays into COVID hugely, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think you and I would might differ here. I'm not convinced that churches opening up is the most helpful way of a public face. Sure. Always I'm not convinced. It's not either. Yeah. I really don't know for sure. Yeah. But also, and then also you could very much ask the question, is it even the point? Yeah. Like maybe, us going to church is not the area where we fight the public facing battle. You yeah. just go to church. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a whole other topic. Oh, that's fun. We, <laughs> well, tell me about, um, tell me about, well, let's dive into it to some degree. Tell me about the paper that you're, that you guys are working on. Sure. Or so, should we not? Is that a secret? No, no, it's not secret at all. Um, no, I, I don't have an issue talking about it. Yeah. Um, so it kind of, I'm going to link back to what you just said, talking about, 
the church meeting during COVID. Um, what do we do? What do we do as Christians during COVID, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a it's a huge topic. And and uh, you know it's just a nice easygoing topic. No no <laughs> hot tensions. On no this controversy no, here not at even all. A little bit. <laughs> so um, I'll kind of give my position first. Um, no, you know what? I'll talk about the paper first, and then I'll I'll kind of I'll kind of give a very very brief synopsis of of mm. where we go with the paper. So kind of coming out of these Monday night meetings, we've been um, brainstorming for ways to bring Christian worldview, uh, bring an understanding of, of the heritage we have in, in the political realm, uh, kind of to a widespread audience. So what uh, a couple of us are trying to do is is write a paper discussing kind of the, the government's role as prescribed by the Bible, uh, um, as, as given to them by God, and then how a Christian is supposed to interact with the government uh, in, in different situations. And of course, this was motivated by COVID because there is so much disagreement yeah. on these topics within the church, right? So this was motivated by COVID and we want to bring some, bring a little bit of clarity, uh, particularly going back to um, the reformers, going back to uh, the 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 Dutch politicians like like Kuiper Kuiper was uh, prime minister of Holland for a number of years, and he was he was a reformed politician. Um, so we're we're going back to them and, and kind of trying to explain our heritage and explain what it means for us today. So, in a very practical sense, or or kind of, kind of going through the paper, we start with the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over everything. Um, everything in this world is under God's domain. So that means the government must be under God's domain as well. And in fact, the Bible supports that. Um, apparently, now I'm, I am no expert in original languages, so I've heard this from credible sources. Um, the, the Bible specifically refers to the government as a diaconate uh, of God. Yeah, it does. So there you go. So... Um, that's a that's a second credible source that I have. <laughs> In no way, for the record, let it state that I am not and never will be a credible source when it comes to the original languages. I can, like a toddler, hack my way through them, and that's the best that God's given me at this point. So, <laughs> so, so what we can get from that is that if if the government is a diaconate of God, then they're a minister of God. Yeah. Then then they are put in their role to to essentially do God's duty that God has given them and then okay well then what is the duty that God has given them and when we start to investigate it um, we start to see that we can go back to we can go to Romans 13 the government has a duty to promote good and punish evil well if you're talking about good and evil being described in the Bible well who defines that good and evil it must be God right Uh, so the 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 government's role then is to promote good and punish evil as defined by God. So does the government have any authority to close churches? Right? So now my argument would be no. The government has no authority to close churches. But that doesn't mean that churches must all open their doors. Right? Right? Because we still do have to be cognizant of uh, public's perception of what is going on around us. And right now, absolutely, the public is is very afraid of COVID in general, I would say. 
uh, at least at least a significant minority of the public is very afraid of COVID. Right. Uh, and the rest, well, they probably would see it as rather uncaring if churches open their doors. Yeah. But I think that that decision should be the church's decision, not the government's decision. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, with this paper, we go into it. Um, I, I I'm not going to give away the ending because because I think the ending is is what's most important. Um, it, we what I'll say is that we do have to be very careful when we try to give a prescription for Christian action Amen. that is is not explicitly stated in the Bible, right? Yep. Because as soon as we do that we're kind of starting to do the same thing as the Pharisees. Yeah. Right. And I want to be careful saying that because that's a, that's a pretty serious thing to say. But if we start prescribing action for other Christians to do based on our own conscience, then we're essentially creating another law besides God's law. So we have to be very, very careful when we do that. 110%. It's so, we, we don't do that in the paper. <laughs> That's good. Um, so that, that is one thing that we very carefully decided. We're not going to say that all churches must open their do doors. Right. We're not going to say that all churches must shut their doors. There has to be some sort of freedom around these issues. And, and we have to determine what we're going to do based on a set of principles that we outline in the paper. Sure. So um, we're... we're it's a slow progression, but we are continually working on it. I yeah. know it, it was supposed to have come out probably a few weeks ago now. Sure. Um, it, it, is, it has been challenging to write. It's been challenging to find the time to work on it, particularly given the fact that we both have, have fairly demanding jobs anyways. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's kind of in its final stages right now. Yeah. So. And you're working on this with? With, uh, with Josh Emanuel. Yeah. Yeah, pity I didn't get a chance to talk to him before he pieced out to another country. Yeah, but, yeah, he would have been a real good. Actually, yeah. you know what? He might be interested in doing uh, doing some sort of little Zoom thing or yeah, something. Yeah, Zoom call we'll or something. Yeah, we'll see what we can do. Yeah, but he's he's another fascinating guy. Very he well, is. very well read. Yeah, very well read. Masters in philosophy. Right now, he's doing mission work in in Nigeria. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think it might be. Maybe a surprise for people to think through what a reformed political perspective is. Right. Um, I know there's like ARPA is, is sort of dedicated around that point, yep. but at least for me often, and I think it's probably right, when I think of reformed, it's generally in the realm of theology and how we would relate to God. Yeah. But there's a very strong stream of reformed thought that's explicitly political, which is Absolutely. kind of where you guys are diving into, right? That's right. It's, it seems to be a... Uh, stream of thought that is relatively neglected. Um, we can go all the way back to to John Calvin. John Calvin had his thoughts on on political action, um, but right now in our current social context, it seems to be a stream of thought that has been relatively neglected by the church. And I think that's simply because um, we have been. Just just as a church, we have been largely supported by the government. The government hasn't really imposed any great restrictions on us in the past 100 years, something like that. Um, so we've been relatively supported by the government. And I think we've kind of forgotten about um, kind of what the reformers said. The, the people who have gone before us, the people who have actually had to deal with with tyranny and, and uh, monarchs who thought they're... they're um, 
they had basically the divine right to do whatever they wanted. These are the guys that the reformers were going up against. Um, and I mean, we haven't had to do that for several hundred years. So we've kind of forgotten what the reformers have said. Right. Um, now, given our, our current context, I'm not saying it's going that bad, but yeah. certainly the government has imposed some restrictions on the church. We can all agree to that. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we go back and see what the reformers said about this? Yeah, especially since our church is, you know, owe and like intentionally exist so much in the strain of the reformers, right? Right. For right. a reformed church. Right. Or you're Presbyterian, so. Yeah, I, OPC. Um, Which is still reformed for the record. Yeah, it is still reformed. Um, and I, like I've, I've kind of grown up in reformed churches too. Hmm. Um, Where did you come from before you were Presbyterian? I was in the Canadian Reformed Church. Oh, fun. Yeah. yeah that explains the whiskey. <laughs> I cannot resist cheap jabs at the Canadian Reformed. I love you guys. And I've got my fair set of stereotypes for each one of us that are equally fun to jab, jab at. So if I want to throw a, throw a whole bunch of controversy in the mix, I came from the Canadian Reformed Church, left the Canadian Reformed Church because I was convinced of of cradle baptism which is how dare you not infant baptism you don't think babies should be watered (laughs) pack this podcast up let's get out of here (laughs) so i i I left the canadian forum church to to go to baptist churches um and then i was up in ottawa for a little while uh attending baptist churches up there moved back down to the niagara region was not Basically didn't find Baptist churches that we really fit in at or, or mm. that we would be comfortable having a membership at. So we ended up in a uh, Orthodox Presbyterian church. And you guys have a great uh, OPC church. Yeah, we, we do really appreciate our church for sure. Yeah. Do you think... Do you think a, a Credo Baptist and a Pedo Baptist community can actively work together long term because there's so many issues where here we go there's so many issues where i'm like suck it up guys y'all gonna disagree love each other you're gonna work you're gonna love christ you're gonna hash out these things over your whole life it'll be great and then baptism is the one that sits on that line where it's like no you really that's that tough because you you gotta have those baptisms (laughs) And they're going to be one way or the other. And like for a church to let, let, like, let's postulate a hypothetical 50, 50 split church. Like, can you, can you have a healthy Christian body and disagree on this one? I don't know. I'd love to think that it can happen. So I don't know. um, I say this carefully because I don't want to put any pressure on my church leadership, but I'll say it as the, the kind of historical OPC position. Um, because I think there was an OPC pastor back in the 60s who tackled this question directly, whether or not OPC churches should allow confessional Baptists into membership, Okay, um, because that was a big topic. And his conclusion was, yes, we have no reason to, to withhold membership from them if they are true believers. We have no reason to do that. Um, but just be aware of sort of the numbers. Um, Basically, his his conclusion was don't allow the Baptists to gain a majority in the congregation because then, I mean, you're going to completely change your congregation to a Baptist congregation and it's no longer going to be OPC. So that was his solution. Interesting. I have also attended a church out in in BC that 
So this was on Vancouver Island. Reformed churches are not common on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was a, a Reformed church, and it was, as far as I know, it was basically split 50-50. Baptists and, and I guess, Pado-Baptists. Right. Um, and kind of the upshot of that was you didn't hear too many too many sermons on covenant theology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's possible you could you could hold to a covenant theolo- covenantal theological position and still be a credo baptist. Certainly, it's possible. I think so. Yeah, um, I don't know how to mix that cookie dough pretty well, but so it, it's a different. Um, so, so Baptists do have their version of covenant theology, right? It is it is different. It is notably different than kind of the the reformed idea of covenant theology Mm -hmm. um but baptists do have their version sure basically all i'm saying there is they have their way of understanding the covenants right and that's an important distinction to make because this is such a murky topic man because like i'm sitting there listening to t for g and then albert moeller is saying how much he's like indebted to covenant theology and i'm like bro i've read like the textbooks at your seminary on covenants pretty sure you don't yeah but like also he does because the term is flexible right and so i guess it can it can mean like if you say covenant theology and you mean like a theology of the covenants i love covenants yep. we all love covenants the bible's shot through with covenants yep. the new covenant we kind of owe a lot to it you know yeah the holy spirit for example yeah um <laughs> covenants are huge so important to understand the bible but then there's systematic reform covenant theology covenant of grace covenant of works covenant of redemption what that means like that and i i'm super passionate on this and i, I don't yeah. know if i should uh, dive into this now or not but well it's it's, it's something that i haven't i haven't studied in a while so right. i would have a, a tough time talking clearly on it sure um yeah. now interesting when i was diving into baptism it was a very challenging topic to dig into because i i was really like i was brought up one way right yeah um which is very normal if you grow up in a in a reformed church it's, that's very normal um but you don't then, exactly get cracked open like hey guys hey hey seven-year-old other people don't sprinkle babies right here's the reasons why it doesn't right. happen very, and probably for good reason yeah like, yeah I, without a doubt would um, be a great idea to do that to kids <laughs> no that's right and and churches do have to maintain their doctrinal distinctives mm-hmm. Um, so no issue with that. But when I started digging into it, the one thing that, that kind of made it a little bit lighter for me, it took a little bit of the, the heaviness out of it was, was reading a Spurgeon quote Spurgeon, of course, the, the very famous Baptist pastor in England back in, I think the 1800s, he said, Calvin was pure gospel. And, and it was like, hold on, like you guys disagreed on baptism, yet you can still say that, that he, he was a believer and he was he like his whole theology was the gospel okay so baptism isn't isn't the end of the world then. totally right? totally i think of when paul i think it's in it's either for the beginning of first or second corinthians where he goes like thank god that i didn't baptize any of you well gaius and uh, and whatever, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a couple others from the house of whatever but look point is i didn't come here to baptize i yeah. came here to preach the gospel yeah. and like if if not to say baptism isn't important, but if baptism is this sacrament of such vast proportions, then Paul wouldn't have just been casually like, yeah, right. thank goodness I didn't baptize any of you because it's becoming a problem. And maybe he would have looked at our churches and gone, 
you guys are making baptism a problem. Yeah. If right. I was here, I would not be baptizing right now. I would be preaching, preaching. the gospel of unity right now because yeah, yeah. you guys are not taking it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, and my, I, I don't know, my Omenopa just gave me Spurgeon's um, commentaries on Matthew. Right. And they weren't horrified to do so because, yeah. and like our, our bookshelves are stocked with Baptist preachers. He's, and Spurgeon is, <laughs> I, got, I got to laugh when I say this because Spurgeon is like the one guy that reformed people are willing to read the one yeah. baptist that reformed people are willing to read no come on most people like piper right oh uh, Piper. Uh, really I, no yeah I, okay. you're right so there was a there was a I, little bit said in jest sure i i mean <laughs> i'm i guess there are people who don't like piper in the reform camp but i don't know who they are and yeah yeah, yeah. Be a bit terrified to meet them i'll do respect and love now i want to bring this into a different a little bit i'm gonna i'm gonna push this a little bit so if we can... It's getting salty here on Chats <laughs> Under the Sun. If we can say that, you know, a baptism might not be something to divide over. We have unity beyond that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what about... Um, oh, wow, I'm losing my words. It's, it must be nine o'clock. Yep. <laughs> um, what about denominational differences? Hot take. I don't like them. Oh, no, I, um, <laughs> I have to be careful with this kind of thing, right? Cause mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. I have my opinions, but I yeah. want to be really cognizant of the fact that I'm 23 right? and I've only read so many books yeah. and talked with so many people. Yeah. I actually think the Southern Baptist convention has pretty much nailed it. Okay. In the sense of they are not a denomination. They are a very loose, and they're they're very adamant about this. They are a very loose collection of churches that very much maintain the individual autom- um, sovereignty and autonomy of each church, right. while still being gathered together, I guess, in name, but also try and maintain a healthy relationship between churches of checking up each other and, and mutual accountability. Yeah, not super. I, I see problems with synods yeah and i'm so aware that like so many smarter people than me have thought through and, and <laughs> lived and died through this stuff so I'm, I'm just i'm so aware of that but i i see a lot of damage and i know that that synods can do with a structure that exists so superseding the individual church that it doesn't allow individual churches to grow and have the autonomy and flexibility and church liberty inside their own situations right. And it's different, and this totally depends on how your synod is structured, yeah. right? But and, and I guess the argument comes forward that like synods can help individual churches from straying, and it's true. But you can also have entire denominations that, from our pers- from a reformed perspective, has gone off the rails, right? So I I don't believe this in in certain ways, but I think our churches would maintain that the CRC churches quote unquote right. went off the rails, right? Again broad brush yeah totally not fair in, in certain instances but yeah so i think that that matters because i mean a denomination i guess could be i mean there's a historical component to it yeah for, that's huge but at least in the present sense it's a collection of churches defined by their unity toward each other but also an overarching system above that with the synods that issues are brought up to and and to some degree controls what goes on in on the individual churches yeah i'm talking more from the perspective of i know the frc urc system a bit more yeah i think the various presbyterian systems do things a bit differently yeah there right? is a difference there i don't want to speak to them because i just i don't know enough sure, about sure. them. 
I mean, um, to be fair, I don't know much about what I'm talking about either. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. Enough, at least. It's, it's perhaps a, it's an issue that I would definitely have to study more. Yeah. Because I haven't thought enough about it. I will say this, though. Um, even in my own personal experience, a congregation being local to you means a whole lot. Yeah. Rather than mm-hmm. having to travel 35, 40, 45 minutes to get to your church uh, to participate in anything, mm-hmm. if you if you can travel five minutes and be at a at a at a solid church, it, like that means a whole lot to me. And I think in certain instances that would trump um, being completely aligned with yeah. uh, doctrinally with the church. And and like my wife and I are living that out ourselves rather than attend a, a confessional Baptist church that's that's 40 minutes away, mm-hmm. we're going to an Orthodox Presbyterian church that's seven minutes away. Yeah. Because we find that it's just, it's so much more important to be part of a local congregation. You can just be so much more active. Um, and particularly if a church is supposed to be active in its immediate community, it's that's really challenging to do if you live 40 minutes away from a church, right? 110%. Yeah. I can... I would put forward actually that it's healthy to have theological disagreements in a church. Yeah. I don't think we're doing unity, the idea of unity, any service when it's just our, our church unity. If our church unity is defined by our theological agreement, it's like, well, no, you've just filtered out all the people that disagree with you and called it unity. Right. It's yeah. just not, that's not true. There isn't any unity unless there's something for me to go. Yeah, I disagree with you on that, but right. I'm going to be unified with you. Yeah. Right. And Go ahead. If you just, I'm, I'm so huge on this because I've, and now, to be fair, I haven't baptized any kids in my church. Don't have any. But I've got massive theological disagreements with my church. Yeah. I don't hold the covenant theology. It's like the underpinning of the, like the reformed hermeneutical framework. Yeah. I love the heck out of my church. And I've... I'm part of ministries at my church. Yeah. I love a lot of the men at my, like, like the men specifically, because like the Bible studies that I'm part of at my church. I love my pastor. He's great. Yeah. Um, I love discussing these things with people in my church. And that's just been true for so many of my friends. We, yeah. so many of us hold different positions and different understandings. We all hash it out. And, yeah. And at the end of the day, it's like, cool, let's go snowboarding or something. <laughs> yeah. like, we don't, it's just not, and this kind of goes back all the way to where we first started this. I love you as a brother in Christ so much more than our hermeneutical discussions exactly. on Genesis. Exactly. It's just, it's not, it's not worth me breaking faith with you as a person. Yeah. Even if I go to the end of the discussion and go, you're still wrong. Jeez, it's been two hours and I can't believe you're still wrong. <laughs> Anyways, let's go grab a burger or something. <laughs> right? Exactly. That's exactly it. And um, I like the com- the contrast between unity and uniformity. Mm. If we think unif- if we think the only way to unity is through uniformity, that we must all look the same, act the same, dress the same, uh, think the same thing, that's not unity anymore. That's like um, it's really interesting. Sometimes I think that um, certain areas within the Christian community have attempted to gain unity through uniformity. And now we have churches dividing over COVID response. Mm. And all of a sudden they found something that they're no longer uniform on. And because they've defend they've they've depended on uniformity for unity, while they're not uniform anymore, mm. then they divide. Right? But if we realize that, you know what? 
Unity comes from the gospel. If we believe the same gospel, then perhaps how we live it out isn't quite as important as the gospel itself, right? We can have unity even if we don't quite do the same thing. Totally. And, and it, honestly, I think sort of my perspective on COVID is that COVID is a great thing for the church because it's forcing the church to think about these things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The hard part comes where it's like, we're we're painting in broad idealistic strokes. absolutely we are because someone could come and be like of course like homosexuality right like unity defi-, and then then we might pump the brakes and go okay hold up we're talking about something that either is or isn't categorized as a sin yeah you got to get that right yeah and if and it really matters where you fall on that yeah because then it's someone who needs to be like approached by one or two and then talked about in that category which is hard, right? So, and I guess different people have different things of what are sins. Like, I'm really aware that there's totally any any broad brush of like, yes, unity, rah rah, can be met with. Here's a very specific instance where that crumbles, and you right, go, yeah, fair enough, right. right? No, it's it's completely true, um, and it takes a lot of discernment. Now, the Bible is very clear on on certain sins, categories of sins, um, defining certain sins, but there's there are other categories that you know what they they just aren't so clear. Yeah. Um, so we have to be careful to not try to sort of take away kind of personal freedom mm-hmm. um, in order to make the Bible appear more clear. And, and what I'm what I mean by that is is we have to be careful to basically not define things as sins that the Bible doesn't define as right. sins. Right? Huh. That's actually <laughs> that's an important thing to to think through that I've never really thought through. Maybe in this. I'm thinking thinking through this right now, so this might not come out quite right. <laughs> That's fine. Um, if black and white is equals this is sin and this isn't, the Bible's really not clear. A lot of the time. Okay. Like a ton of the time. Yeah. Right? It's so full of specific situations and guidance and like, you know what I mean? Like, fruits of the spirit aren't black and white. There's a whole like gray zone of you and god and you're the only people who are going to know how that panned out for you right yeah and it's hard and i have crack i know crack addict friends who have a lot of the fruits of the spirit yeah in ways that i've gotten little glimpses of but a lot of people never will yeah and 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 i know people who are cut and dried who have got a lot of sin in their life and hello i'll put myself in that category in a lot yeah. of ways right yeah so there's there's like you know Christ didn't get up on his mountain and preach the the Sermon on the Mount and go, all right, here's my list of 674 do's and 674 right. don'ts. And as long as you can slot yourself in those categories, you'll be fine. That sounds a little bit like the law of Moses, where, which yep. had that structure that you could not like, well, that's a whole other conversation. But <laughs> the point is the spirit working in us allows us to navigate these waters of integrity of sin in a way that moves you away from rule book type language, language you'd use for children to a really higher calling of like being a new creation and being tied with Christ and yep. moving and living in integrity. Yep. Which still trying to figure all this out, but, but that's, that's the beauty of the gospel, right? Because God, God didn't want us to be a set of robots following rules. God wanted a relationship with us. Yeah. He wanted like, he wanted us to love him 
it was it was much more about the focus of our hearts rather than can we follow these rules yeah right so and that's that's why i think the freedom of christ extends far beyond um freedom from sin freedom from slavery Mm. to sin right because we have that freedom to to kind of live out our personal convictions so long as as we are living them out in faith and seeking to glorify god by them yeah right and and i mean (laughs) i don't think there's any two people in this world that have the exact same convictions right so if if we are dependent on a a certain lifestyle for salvation i mean we're all gonna fail amen right yeah which is the beauty of the gospel yeah and and of course (laughs) i don't even know to backfill Living your own convictions doesn't mean you get to sleep with your right. Wife, That's right, absolutely. Or sleep with your mother, the <laughs> O Corinthian. That's right. right. Yeah, like there's 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 areas where it just it's so out of line with what a Christian walk is that it can be codified and labeled as sin. Right, absolutely. And there's, and there's more than enough of that in the New Testament. Yeah, but I'm always amazed at how much Paul doesn't just go and rattle off all the specific areas where he wants people to not do things. He's right, so much more like, like, what does love mean in this situation? Yeah find that out right yeah and and there are do's and don'ts there are certainly do's and don'ts um without a doubt and and we can't um kind of go the antinomian route and say that law doesn't mean anything for us anymore because all it all, all we're supposed to do is have a relationship with god no because god does define sort of um what he expects within that relationship totally but that that uh, that definition. There certainly there are some rules, but there's a lot of freedom there too. Yeah, which is and which is not freedom. And Paul says it's like not freedom so that sin may abound, but right. freedom to pursue higher levels of integrity with Christ. Right. In ways that I I mean I've not perfectly, but I've started thinking of that freedom idea in the sense of it's like how holy can you be? That's a fun question. How holy can you be? And maybe this TV show is not categorically sinful. It's just not. Right. But maybe between you and God and a good amount of prayer and a few cups of coffee, you can go, no, I don't, I don't need that. Or, or this situation or this action or yeah. this time with your little sister or this pick your situation. Yeah. It's can you, empowered by Christ, fight for new levels of holiness. Yeah. That's freedom in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And that's cool. That's great. Thank God that uh, sanctification is an ongoing process. Oh eh? yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Where um, where did a lot of this start for you? Like, because I'm, I'm sitting across from a dude who's who's pretty thoughtful and enjoys chatting about these kind of things. Like, thanks, man. Did you? Hey, well, that's a plant. Did you um? Where did this come from? Like, was there a point in your life where you started really enjoying this? Or yeah, like, so what's your story? Now we're going to get into the story, your life story. We're a minute and 14. <laughs> no, we're uh, an hour and 14 minutes into this. Yeah, that was all just intro. <laughs> <laughs> now the four-hour podcast begins. Um, so, I, I mean, I grew up in the Reformed Church. I, I went to, uh, to Guido for high school. Um, fairly typical. I, I don't want to say typical, but it, kind of a typical Reformed upbringing. Um. Through a series of kind of wanderings, I guess, I ended up in the military for three years. And and I will make no bones about it. I was not always living out my Christian calling in the military. I certainly still professed Christ. 
Um, but I, I was not always living it out. Certainly not the way that uh, I should have or even living out my convictions. Um, after the military, uh, fast forward a few months and I ended up in, uh, in Carleton University studying criminology. And that's where I was really... It's interesting because because the military was a very challenging environment. You think that's where I would be challenged on my faith, but it wasn't because everyone's in the military. Everyone's challenged on something. So to be challenged on something is is not an insult. It's not a knock against you. It's just it's just part of the environment, part of the camaraderie. Actually, um, it was in Carleton University studying criminology, uh, things like sociology, psychology. Um, law, stuff like that. That's where I was really challenged and where I really had to start to understand what being a Christian meant um, cool. and, and what it meant to live out Christianity. So, for example, um, it, was, it was in my second semester, I think. I was taking a, an introduction sociology course. The prof just openly said, communism is the way forward. And I was like, Huh, interesting. I've never heard that before. I've always thought of communism as a bad thing. Okay, so what is what is communism? What does it mean? So I started to dig into it. And I, I'll completely confess, I didn't read a whole lot of Marx, although that, uh, that class was quite Marxist, so I have a decent understanding of what he said. Um, but it was through these challenges that I really had to start to understand um, what it meant to be a Christian. Um, and I found that um, I really had to dig to find answers, to find answers that I was satisfied with. And that's kind of when that was, that was sort of my, it sounds silly and cliche to say it, but that was kind of my awakening. And, and within those couple years, I would say that, um, I would, to use a, a, a Baptist term, that's when I was saved. That's mm. when I was kind of born again. Um, I, I, like certainly prior to that, I, I confessed Christ. Um, I was not the best at living that out in my in my in my personal life. But then in Carleton University, when I was being challenged every single day, pretty much every single class I went to, when my faith was being uh, directly targeted, it was under attack everywhere I went. That's when I started to really have to provide answers and and really. Like I, I found it absolutely necessary to live out my faith very deliberately then, because if I, if I had to stand up in this environment, then I also couldn't stand down at certain times. If you know what I mean, mm. I, I, I had to live that out consistently. So if you're, I'll retranslate what you said and tell me if this is right. If you had to give intellectual answers that affirmed what it meant to be a Christian, your personal life had to back that up absolutely. or else the, like the, the discongruity between the two just becomes unbearable. Absolutely. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was kind of where I started really being interested in other ideas. And particularly mm. that's where I, I became interested in Christian worldview. Right. Um, and I'll make a distinction between, between Christian and conservative. Conservative just wants the past. They think that the past was better than now. That's, right. that's kind of a, a very, very basic definition of conservative. Well, Christians aren't Christians. I would say must not be conservative. Often in, in today's political realm, we we tend to be more conservative, um, but that must not be the principle that Christians stand on. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. Like, 
if if liberal means taking care of those disfortunate than yourself yeah hey oh i'm a liberal through <laughs> yeah. baby right yep. and and of course it, it does and doesn't mean that but yeah right that's cool though yeah so yeah coming out of that well in in university i spent uh two years two full years studying so i studied over the summers as well mm. so i got three years of school done in two years um and honestly my education was much more than than listening to what they were telling me it was okay i'm listening to what they're telling me now why is that wrong right because almost everything i heard in school was wrong interesting right according to my christian worldview i disagreed with i would say like 90 percent of it okay literally wow eh? um Perhaps some of the psychology courses that were just merely factual, um, like results of different psychological studies. Sure, sure, I couldn't, I couldn't disagree with that stuff. But the conclusions that came out of it, I, I disagreed with just about all of it. Interesting. So my education in university came outside of university. It came came through um, sort of my own research into okay, what is Christian worldview? What yeah. does it mean? That's fascinating. Yeah, my I did not have quite the same experience. Okay, I I, I went to well, at least when I went to college, very 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 liberal atmosphere. But the tolerance of liberalness came with that. Okay, so no one challenged um, me on my positions. Okay, I'm not a very challengeable person. People, okay. Like I'd be like, this is what I put. I'm, especially then I was much more of a dick. So <laughs> then it was like, this is what I believe. Deal with it. And they'd be like, cool, you do you, baby. Right. And and that's kind of there is that quote-unquote tolerance that is that there's a lot of in in um post-secondary where people will just let you do what you want yeah so there is that tolerance but but what i was what was being taught in class right right um like it was not christian sure simple as that sure yeah then that's for for what you're telling me like that side of it is 100 percent. i just i had a different side of yeah yeah sure because in marketing it's kind of yeah, okay. It's a lot more. It's, it's college too. It's, it, it's interesting. Right. So I took a uh, an economics class towards yeah. the just a, just as a uh, elective, right? Yeah. Took an economics class later on. And I was like, ah, this is a this is a place I can relax. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this isn't directly challenging everything I believe. Yeah. No, I. I but then I when I went to Brock, I definitely had a few of those courses too. But yeah, to be honest, I just watched Netflix the whole course and <laughs> read the textbook and pretty much that's Good all to I go. did. Yeah. There's a there's a point where it's like all right. Me paying attention is pearls before swine. Yeah, so right. I'm not even going to. Sure, sure. But I wasn't there for those courses. I was there to learn Greek, and that's about it. Yeah, yeah. Get a piece go. of paper and yeah. continue on to seminary. Good to go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Do you, um, when we were talking a little bit about stuff we wanted to talk about, you mentioned some of your farming stuff. And oh, we that is. That. Now, now you. We're, we're going down the rabbit hole now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I like, uh, I like left fields. Okay. Uh, how much time we have? <laughs> so um, coming out of what I just explained as sort of uh, my, my awakening, my willingness to explore other ideas, mm-hmm. right? Being challenged in university, um, thinking differently than what I was being taught. Also often thinking differently than, than perhaps how I was raised. Those are the where that was where I found myself. And then out of that also came, or it was prior to that, it was the, the baptism discussion for me. So right. there was kind of what I, where I found myself was I was thinking differently than kind of the way I was raised or the way I was being taught. 
Um, now, perhaps I'm just a contrarian. Perhaps. <laughs> no. Really? <laughs> I, I, would, I would like to think differently, but I mean, I've been accused of that and, and I, I can't contradict it. Listen. That's one thing I can't contradict. Um, I will... I'll just put this forward. There is tremendous freedom in just accepting the fact that you're a punk. Um, I've long embraced the fact that my personality is just, I am personality type a punk. I am like rebel countercultural. And then right. once, you, once you're cool with that, then you can be like, all right, now we're going to work on you and make you like, let's round those edges a little bit. But deep in the core, there's a mohawk wearing, you know, leather studded tomahawk wielding dude. So one of my, one of my, I have no idea who said it anymore, but one of my favorite things that I've heard during COVID was that John MacArthur is the most punk rock of anyone right now because <laughs> he's so willing to just do something different. He was the first first pastor to stand up and open his doors. So I, I laughed when I heard that and I was like, you know what? Being punk isn't so bad then. I'm 100% going home and photoshopping a pink mohawk on John MacArthur and a leather jacket and a Harley. It's going to be great. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> We're talking about farming. Um, so after university, I didn't find a, or I didn't immediately find a job in my field. So my dad's been a, a farmer basically his whole life. His dad was a farmer. So uh, he kind of presented me the, um, the idea of, of taking over one of his farms, um, buying a farm off of him, running it, and, and carrying that on and seeing where that leads. So I've been doing that now for three years. Uh, a little over three years, I think. I can't keep track anymore. But uh, I want to be careful when I say this because I know there's a lot of... Um, within the Reformed community, there's a lot of farmers. Yeah. And and there's a lot of... Um, I don't, I don't want to say pride, maybe honor. There's a lot of honor in that. And, and I don't want to take away from that at all. But recently, I was given a book by a friend uh, actually, it's a great book for for someone who loves Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, something like that. Um, it was it's called not, The Hobbit Party. Was not expecting to go this direction. Well, this is where the whole journey into the different direction of farming began. So, The Hobbit Party, phenomenal book. It talks about the political philosophy of Tolkien and how it comes out in his books. Um, highly recommended if you if you like Lord of the Rings, if you like um, The Hobbit, if you like politics and, and worldview and stuff like that. It's a fantastic read. Uh, the authors of the book are extremely well read. They reference all sorts of different material, different authors, different subject materials. I have no idea how someone could read that many books in their life. Anyways, along the way, they referenced a guy named Joel Salatin. Um, he, is, he is frequently called the uh, America's most famous farmer. And they referenced him or they specifically referenced a book that he wrote titled everything I want to do is illegal. And, and as a farmer, I was like, well, he sounds kind of contrary and kind of similar to me, I guess I kind of want to read that book. Um, now I didn't read it immediately. It, it took a little bit. It took a little while for me to pick up one of Joel Salton's books. I ended up picking up a book called, uh, folks, this ain't normal. It was one of his later books. Um, and when I was reading this book, it was almost like I, I agreed with a lot of what he said, but I also was was convicted of it. I felt I to a certain extent I felt guilty because a lot of what he was talking against was stuff that I just considered normal. 
um, mm. and he he was talking basically his whole the whole premise of that book book is that what we consider to be normal life now is historically completely abnormal. It's it's life that has been like it really only started 60 years ago or 70 or 80 years ago, kind of in the 1960s. Um, and, and we have this life that is so dependent on technology now that it's, it's completely different than anything before that. And it's so abnormal historically. And he makes a fairly convincing argument that this life that we call normal now is, is actually not good for us. Uh, and he... In particular, he's a farmer. Um, in particular, he targets agriculture and how our current system of agriculture is completely abnormal uh, when we compare it to what's happened historically. He farms down in the state somewhere. Um, I, I don't want to speak too much. I've read a, a bunch of his books, but he does a lot of pasture-raised animals. He does not. Um, he keeps them in barns as little as possible. Um, raising animals in barns is kind of the, the modern way to do it. That's mm. how that's how food production is done. Um, anyway, so I, I read his book, and it kind of pushed me in the direction of what's frequently called ecological farming, or sustainable farming, or restorative farming. Uh, basically, the whole principle is to in your food production to actually benefit the land at the same time rather than just take from it. Which to me goes right back to the creation mandate. We have dominion over the world, but we're not to destroy it. We're not to take whatever we want. We have to care for the world. We have to, we have to support it. We have to um, build it as much as we can. We're not to destroy the world. Um, and there's, there seems to be a fair amount of evidence that current agriculture practices are actually unsustainable like the earth can't sustain it and that's not an environmentalist uh sort of hippy dippy idea uh there's actual hard scientific data on this so he espouses uh it, it to to most people it would seem like a much more traditional method of agriculture but it's also proven that it's an it's a method that benefits the land as well so that is, I, I've been, honestly, I, it, like, it's a conviction for me. And I realize that other farmers do not have that conviction. I do not want to talk bad about them if they do mm. not have that conviction. But for me, it is essentially a conviction level. And I do want to move forward pursuing that idea with, with kind of my, my farming business. Gotcha. That's super rad. It's, it's something that, like... If you mention this to a lot of people, they'd be like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Um, but it's, it's something that I've done a lot of research into. And it's very, very interesting. Mm. And I'm, I'm really excited to pursue it. You, I mean, I can see you people can't. You're like lit up right now. You're super, <laughs> you're super stoked about this, right? Um, yeah. I, that's why I love this podcast is because I know very little about farming, although I live on a farm. Yeah. Um, but it's super cool meeting someone who who's being thoughtful about the, how the creation mandate fits in with your occupation. Right. And very naturally so, right? Taking yep. care of the earth, growing, gardening. Yeah. Right? That's that's amazing. So what what's what's kind of some of the... 
what you what you outlined for me was very much the ten thousand foot view. Yeah. What are some of the like kind of boots on the ground changes that you kind of see coming down the direction that are going to move into a way where your conscience is feeling better with this? Where right. you're where you're you're you feel that you're doing you're acting in the farming world with more integrity. Right. So this gets into stuff that um, a lot of farmers will scoff at. So I, um, if, if you're a farmer and you're listening, I just want to say like, um, just, well, if you want to take my ideas with a grain of salt, feel free. Just um, look into them. They're, they're very interesting ideas, if, if nothing more, right? right? They're just interesting ideas. So right now, as a, as a culture, our food production is dependent on annual plants. So that's mm-hmm. plants that are planted in the spring. They, they, well, they, they plant in the spring, they grow through the summer and they're harvested in the fall. Right. Right. So the big one is corn. We grow tons of corn and corn is fed to the animals we eat. Um, we eat corn ourselves. Um, a lot of our food comes from corn or, or other annual plants, um, pretty much like just about everything. Right. So the model, so the problem with that is, is that it requires big equipment. It requires uh, very intensive field management. Um, and ultimately, and they're seeing this in the most fertile areas across the world is that it strips away topsoil. Um, in a practical sense, leave in a practical sense, leaving the land bare for X amount of months a year, kind of in between harvest and planting, leaving the land bare, wind can blow across it uh, and it will actually strip topsoil off. Uh, you'll have erosion from rain, so you, you might have gullies yeah. and, and stuff like that. Um, so there's some of the most fertile land in, in North America that is currently, um, it's basically being destroyed and, and um, farmers are seeing lower and lower yields from that land. Uh, some of the land has become unfarmable because of gullies and erosion. Um, so what the restorative or, or sustainable agriculture method does is rely f- much more on perennials and perennials can be just pasture for cows. Um, you can even put pigs on pasture. You can put chickens on pasture. Um, so pasture that animals can eat or perennial food producing plants for humans. And that could be fruit trees, nut trees, um, Basically anything that you can plant once and then harvest from for X amount of years in a row. Right. I mean, asparagus is a perennial. You can plant asparagus seven years later. You have asparagus that you can't control. Yeah. Right. Um, So the idea is to be much more dependent on perennials because, well, long term, it's less work and it's better for the land as well. Gotcha. Interesting. How does this look like for... um for livestock because the practical question that's sort of running through my mind is um a lot of and i'm asking questions of as someone who knows nothing yep i would imagine a lot of the practices that have come about have evolved largely because of efficiency yes and yield yeah right just basic math can we get more weight yes do it right so i would imagine the kind of thing you're talking about would mean less animals less space something of that nature is that the case or or no not necessarily um 
it's interesting because a lot of people say that that the traditional or, or restorative method of agriculture can't feed the world. It's just not efficient enough. We have to be more efficient than that. And and space wise, that's it seems to be in my research that's simply not true. I read a book written by a guy named Mark Shepard. And Mark Shepard really, really opened my eyes to this. He compared his method of restorative agriculture to corn, because corn is the big calorie producer um, in in modern agriculture. With his method, he could produce um, twice as many calories per acre as corn, um, which is really interesting. That's total food calories compared to what what corn would produce. So uh, with regards to space, uh, his method was actually more efficient. Now, the flip side is it does take more work doing that because you have, you've got a lot more moving parts. You can't mm. just rip across an acre with a combine in a couple passes. Um, you've got a lot more moving parts. You've got nut trees and fruit trees and shrubs and, and cows and pigs and chickens all on that one acre. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. But it is, with regards to space, it is very efficient. Interesting. Now, when we, when we base our agriculture off of simply efficiency, it seems we are headed in one direction. Um, and what we see is that the more efficient you get with food production, you end up having a, what's called a monoculture. Um, and that is basically you're raising one species of animal or plant in one area. And while that might be most efficient, it's not natural. Mm. Uh, there is no ecosystem in the world that that has only one species of animal or plant, and it uh, is also not. It's not healthy for the animal. It doesn't produce uh, nutrient dense food either. So, if you compare, for example, a grass fed cow to a, a, a typical feedlot fed cow that you would have in a, in, a, in the most efficient beef production possible. Um, the grass-fed cow is far more nutrient-dense than the feedlot cow, right? Mm. So um, when you when you transition to your sustainable model, you have um, foods that are much more nutrient-dense. But if you stick with your efficiency-first model, there's one direction that's going, and that's actually away from livestock. Um, that's going to plants because plants are more efficient than animals with regards to uh, producing calories and that's going to lab produced meat um, and i mean that quite seriously i read a book by bill gates who is a he's a technophile and he, he loves this stuff um, he sees meat production as happening primarily in labs uh, going forward because it's a way to to um, produce meat with less emissions and and it's very efficient it all happens in one spot um you can produce the exact cut of meat you want with no waste Mm. but now i don't know the the actual nutrient composition of those pieces of lab grown meat but i i'm pretty sure they'll be uh pretty nutrient deficient and i mean that's just not a not a piece of meat that i want to eat right (laughs) yeah so um we have to be very aware of of kind of our agriculture system and where it is going Right. Uh, if if we want efficiency first, then we are moving in a certain direction. That is actually away from eating hmm. real animals. Yeah. What's interesting to me with this discussion is, to some degree, I, as a consumer of food, like everybody, <laughs> don't have an option to ignore some of these conversations. Because right. my choices as a consumer when it comes to meat 
directly play into the conversation about how food is created. Yeah. And I've dabbled ever so slightly into some of these thought processes. Yeah. Um, especially how they play into kind of the broader discussion of automation, jobs, sustainability. Like, what does it mean when, what does it mean for automation to take over the single biggest employment category for men, which is driver? Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. What does that mean with free time? with like work like there's so many interesting questions and i think it's weird maybe taking more time to create your food in a society that offers more leisure than ever before if if desired it, it, maybe there's there's a lot of benefit to that yeah right? and you can see there's there's strains of that going on like around right. like people love the idea of a hobby farm right whereas yep. you know many years ago it would be like hold up you're gonna proactively retrograde technology in order to make yourself enjoy it more what's going on here right right but we're having this opportunity now with yeah it's interesting yeah so it's it's especially interesting considering uh COVID-19, like the first real crisis we've had in North America for quite a while. Yeah. Um, and what do you see? You see uh, people starting their own gardens in their backyard, yep. right? They're all of a sudden interested in food production. You see backyard farmers who previously might have had a difficult time selling their their half a dozen pigs and two cows that they were raising. All of a sudden, these guys can't keep up with demand. Mm. For some reason, people are... Um, more and more being interested in the food that they eat. There's more and more um, desire for whole food, for for actual healthy food rather than yeah. what you might buy in the grocery store, right? Um, and I, I see it as a very good thing. And I see it as something that will definitely push back on the current agricultural system. For sure. So I want to, my, my goal is to jump in on that trend. Uh, well, not even a trend. I see it as a conviction but I also see it as a conviction that I can I can live out very proactively and hopefully establish a, a profitable business around that. Super cool. So it's 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 exciting and it it honestly it brings a lot of purpose to kind of the daily grind for me. Yeah. So I, I, I can see that. Yeah. It's also very scary. Yeah, I believe it. <laughs> Basically upending a like my my ten year plan is to is to upend a, a very stable business for something that I have no idea if it will work. <laughs> yeah, that's not nerve wracking in the slightest. Yeah, man, that's cool though. I I'm really I'm really looking forward to kind of keeping tabs on how this whole operation is going. Right. Yeah, it should be cool. Yeah, it's it's certainly exciting. Yeah, shall we uh shall we wrap this up here? Yeah, no, it's been great. This is a good conversation. It's been man. a great conversation. All right. So. Thank you for listening to this podcast's conversation. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, consider subscribing and sharing and all that jazz. It's immensely helpful. I'm all about having meaningful, interesting conversations. So if you know of someone I should talk to, hit me up on Instagram at itsthevolk. Have a good one, guys.